You're listening to LawPod UK from the creators of the UK Human Rights Blog. It's a podcast that discusses developments across all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All the comments are current at the time of podcast publication. LawPod UK is produced by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. In this podcast, we're bringing you some more of the highlights of this year's annual public law event, held this year at King's College London. The relationship between inquests and Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to life, was one of the central themes. Here's Caroline Cross talking about dealing with detention inquests and specific cases that are relevant to Article 2. So there are a number of cases I'm going to try and cover. I'm going to focus in particular on the first two, Tyrrell and Tainton. As many of you will be aware, under Section 1 of the 2009 Act, all deaths in custody must be investigated or otherwise in state detention must be investigated by a coroner. Now, Section 4 of the the Act lays out that a coroner may discontinue an investigation if the post-mortem reveals the cause of death. However, it specifically excludes deaths in custody and state detention, so there must always be an inquest in those cases. So that obviously therefore raises the question, how wide does the inquest need to be? Especially if a person dies of natural causes, does there need to be a full-blown Middleton investigation? And as such, is the procedural obligation engaged, irrespective of the cause of death? Now that question was looked at in particular in the case of Tyrrell, In that case, the prisoner died of pneumonia secondary to cancer, and the coroner's investigations, the PPO, and the family's investigations all pointed inextricably to natural causes death. And there was no breach of the state of its Article 2 duties. As a result of that, the coroner held that (coughs) the Article 2 procedural obligation was not engaged, and he proceeded to hold an inquest where he only called his coroner's officer. So there were no other witnesses called, so it wasn't a Middleton-compliant inquest. Now, the sister of the prisoner who died brought a case on the basis that there should have been an Article 2 inquest irrespective of the cause of death. Now, even though she couldn't point to any practical difference between the inquest that was actually carried out and the Article 2 compliant inquest that she was seeking, so what the court looked at was all the ECTHR cases at this point, and they held that, in fact, there was a two-stage test. So the first stage was... The state is required, under its positive obligations, to give an explanation as to the cause of death in custody. But only if the death was suspicious would an arguable breach of the Article 2 obligations of the state arise. And it was only then that the procedural obligation under Article 2 would kick in. So they held that, in fact, the coroner was right that Article 2 doesn't apply in those circumstances. So in essence, where a prisoner dies and it's conclusively of natural causes, there's no need for a Middleton-compliant inquest. Now, that was a quite a neat and pragmatic solution to what was a bit of a loose end in the 2009 Act. But a different question was raised in relation to a different Article 2 issue, which is namely, how can Article 2 be satisfied where medical negligence is admitted in a custodial death case, but causation can't be proved? That was an issue that was discussed in the case of Tainton, and the prisoner in that case died following a delayed diagnosis of esophageal cancer. 
the independent clinical review was extremely critical of the care he'd been provided by the Trust, and they found serious shortcomings both in relation to the timeliness of the treatment and the appropriateness of the treatment provided. Now, the Trust in that case admitted negligence but denied causation on the basis that it was so complex and there were so many unknowns in relation to the factual matrices, you couldn't possibly ascertain whether or not their negligent treatment had hastened the death. As a result of that, the coroner refused to put the medical causation question to the jury on the basis that he couldn't be satisfied that the Galbraith Plus test was met. So he only allowed them to consider short-form conclusions, and as a result of that, the jury found that he died of natural causes. His mother, the prisoner's mother, uh, judicially reviewed the coroner on the basis that he should have let the causation question to the jury. Now, the divisional court in that case found that the coroner had been right to withhold the medical causation question from the jury on the basis that it wasn't safe to leave the question to the jury, and he didn't exercise his discretion to leave it to the jury either. But in those circumstances, what he should have done, the court said, was to attach a brief summary of the admitted failings to the record of inquest. And I just want to read a brief passage from that as to why they said that. Where the possibility of a violation of the deceased's right to life cannot be wholly excluded, Section 51B and 2 of the 2009 Act should require the inclusion in the record of inquest of any admitted failings forming part of the circumstances in which the deceased came by his death. And in 75, this was a matter of fairness to the family of the deceased and was required in this case in order to discharge in full the obligation on the state imposed by Article 2 of the ECHR and on the coroner by Section 51 and 2 of the 2009 Act. So what they were essentially doing there is saying, we accept that the causation test is not satisfied, but Article 2 requires that the admitted failings form part of the record of inquest, even if it cannot be proved on the balance of probabilities that they were causative of the death, and even though it cannot be proved on the balance of probabilities that the state were involved in the death. Now, what does this judgment mean? Well, for the families, it's extremely good news because a neutral short-form conclusion is not helpful at all in terms of being a proper record of the inquest of the death. It's wholly inadequate in terms of reflecting the actual failings by the relevant organisations, especially where there are admitted failings by medical trusts or prison organisations. However, and I mentioned this at the beginning, one of the themes of this talk is about unexpected or unforeseen consequences of judgments. And one of the unintended consequences in this case was that it's likely to have a cooling effect on the duty of candour. And the reason is this. If there is going to be attached to the record of inquest a list of the admitted failings by clinicians, clinicians are required by the General Medical Council to self-report when they've been criticised. Now, this case will cause them concern because if those admissions of the failings are attached to the record of inquest, there is then a likelihood that they will face GMC proceedings. So that will mean they're less likely to be frank with the family in relation to the admitted failings. The court does say that it's not necessary in every case to attach the list of failings to the record of inquest, although it doesn't say how serious they have to be. Although in this case they were particularly egregious because there were multiple opportunities where there was a failure to provide appropriate treatment that were missed. However, this is the first case of its kind, so we'll just have to watch this space. Just to recap briefly, Tyrrell, if the death is by natural causes, there's no need for the Article 2 procedural obligation to kick in. 
And Tainton has widened the scope of Article 2 in that Article 2 requires that serious admitted medical failings form part of the record of inquest, even though the state's involvement is only a possibility. So I'll touch very briefly on the two final cases, Hamilton Jackson. That was the case of a man who suffered from mental health issues and had a history of self-harm. And he was found dead in HMP Elmley. And the jury in that case found that it was an accidental death. But the court held that the ACCT policies had not been followed in that case. And what's useful about that case is the importance stressed by the chief coroner in relation to the ACCT policies. He said they're there for a very good reason. They're to help vulnerable people who are at risk to themselves. Now, that's helpful in terms of stressing the importance of the policies. But the SCARF case, which only came out in May this year, found that even though the policies are mandatory, repeated failure to follow the policies will not necessarily amount to systemic failures. And the court in that case had to determine whether the claimant's argument of systemic failures actually held any water. And what the court decided in that case was that even though there had been multiple deaths, they were not all exactly the same type of deaths. So they found there was no systemic failures, but instead distinct, separate operational mistakes in suicide prevention. But they also went on to say even if they had found there had been systemic failures, there wasn't very much they could do about it because the prison had recognised the mistakes. They had made efforts to improve their systems and training policies, which had been accepted by the families. So there wasn't very much more that could be done. And then just coming back to the point as to why there are so many self-inflicted deaths in custody, it's due to the budget cuts. I mean, austerity has had a tremendous effect on prisons' budgets, and as a result of that, that led to staff cuts, which has led to a cut in inexperienced staff being present within prisons. And as a result, there's been an increase in the number of self-harm and suicide deaths. And that's a very quick canter through <laughs> detention inquests. Caroline Cross have won Crown Office Row. Rachel Marcus took the debate further by assessing some of the issues around mental health inquests in regard to Article 2. The real crunch point for me is where we have detention, true detention, there's no question that Article 2 applies and you have everything that flows from that and the impact on the way in which the inquest is carried out and the conclusions that can be arrived at. But where it becomes more interesting from the point of view of this talk is where it's something less than detention in prison or in police custody. And that's why Dole's uh, was a bit of a bombshell once Cheshire West came out. Immediately it came out. I said to somebody I was with them, the, the, the dungeon came, came through, was that an inquest? And said, hang on a minute, how is this going to impact on inquests? and especially the sort of healthcare providers who previously would not have expected to face inquest in the Dole situation, and now did. And the chief coroner's guidance originally was that where somebody is subject to the deprivation of liberty safeguards, absolutely that must be counted as state detention. That was his position to any findings in court. But yes, this counts as state detention and inquest must be held. And where the death is not from natural causes, that will have to be a Middleton-type inquest. Now, if it's not from natural causes, that could be any inquest. There are actions and omissions by, and this is my interpolation on that in, in the guidance, any inquest where there are actions and omissions by healthcare providers or, or anyone else, including mental health services in the case of mental health inquests, may have had an impact on death. That will be a Middleton inquest, even where it's not necessarily related to the incapacity of the patient or the mental health of the patient, and where the 
dolls does not necessarily relevant in the cause of death. So that immediately set the cat amongst the pigeons, and there was a huge increase in the number of dolls applications. And the chief coroner's report in 2015 to 16 is quite clear at the numbers that have been driven through the coronial system, which wouldn't otherwise have been. And the chief coroner's report says that that workload had increased for no good reason which, given that the guidance from the chief coroner had been, well, you've got to treat dolls as state detention, is interesting. One of the themes, of course, is about the problem of restricted resources. And elsewhere in that report, 2015 to 16, the chief coroner noted, as paragraph 8, that many coroner's areas have been neglected for years, if not decades, in the provision of resources. And many of us who practice in the coroner's course are very familiar with that, the cramped provisions being beholden to the local authority of the provision of space, etc., that comment, in fact, in the Collins Report was in relation to medical examiners and how that mooted as one of the solutions to this proliferation of dolls cases. Let's run it through a medical examiner first. And the 2015-16 report said that simply doesn't help. It's going to increase the workload <coughs> of coroners rather than reduce it. So in that report, recommended that Dole's cases be removed from the category of state detention completely. And accordingly, that was enacted in the Policing and Crime Act, which inserts the new definition, which I refer to at number nine, in the Coroners and Justice Act, which now states expressly that if somebody is deprived of their liberty, they are not in state detention. So anyone subject to Dole's is not in state detention for the purpose of the Coroners and Justice Act. And so there is no requirement to hold an inquest unless the other criteria for holding an inquest are relevant. That only applies to deaths after the 3rd of April 2017. So for any deaths up to the 3rd of April 2017, anyone subject to doles who died before that date still has to be an inquest, according to the guidance, into their death as a result of the fact that doles applied. Now, Jeremy referred to the case of Ferreira, um, which um, wasn't a mental health inquest as such, because it wasn't a case where it was the mental health of the patients which led to the situation that they were in. And that actually was the most important point in Ferreira, that what she was being treated for was a physical illness, and her mental capacity, and this was a lady who had Down syndrome, was nothing to do with it. So her pre-existing lack of mental capacity, she had no formal packaging care, no dolls in place up to then, she lived at home with, with nothing in place. She went into hospital because of a physical illness, it deteriorated while she was there, and then was sedated and intubated as a result of the physical illness, not anything to do with her mental capacity. And the decision in Ferreira was, firstly, nothing to do with her mental capacity. She can't possibly be treated as having been <clears throat> deprived of her liberty. But the more interesting thing for going forward is the rest of what she spoke about in terms of the acid test and the general approach to deprivation of liberty, because there was some language in there which is going to cause difficulties, I think, in assessing some of these cases going forward, because now we don't have the automatic approach of anyone subject to dolls must have an inquest. Ferrer, of course, is whether or not you should have a jury with the inquest because somebody's in state detention, but it's going to be the same question applying. And the bit that, can, that uh, worries me, and I say that it's become slightly less clear, not in relation to this particular case, because I think the decision in this particular case is pretty clear, it's how we're going to apply the discussion that's in Ferreira 
to other cases going forward. I'm not sure how generalisable they'll be, and I'll welcome discussion. Because the bit that concerns me is at paragraph 99, because what Lady Justice Arden says is the person may have been rendered unresponsive by reason of treatment they've received, such as sedation, but while that treatment is an immediate cause of their not being free to leave, it's not the real cause, the cause is their illness. So far, so good. I'm not terribly worried by that. We have somebody who's under continuous supervision or control, and then the free-to-leave aspect is nothing to do with the decision to supervise or control that person. It's because they are prevented from doing so by their physical illness. The bit that worries me is where someone may be sedated to prevent them from disrupting the treatment being given to them because they are of unsound mind. Now here she was agitated not because of her, her mental incapacity, that wasn't the problem. Where you have somebody who is sedated due to the disturbance of the mind and they are being treated in their perceived best interests, it appears there is a distinction being driven, a bright line between treating somebody in their best interests and under Section 5 of the Parental Capacity Act and somebody being deprived of their liberty under Section 4 where there isn't necessarily that bright line. And how when somebody is being sedated so that they don't disrupt the treatment they're being given as a result of their mental incapacity or mental disturbance, how that case is materially different from someone who is of sound mind. Given what Lady Joss Arden said about the acid test and about supervision and control, and where somebody in intensive care like this is, is clearly in the supervision and control of the state body in the form of the NHS Trust, where you've additionally got that vulnerability due to somebody being of unsound mind and not capacitors, do you therefore get over the threshold of vulnerability, supervision and control, which Lady Hale seemed to apply as the touchstone of the operational duty applying in Rabone? So where you have somebody in the position of Ferreira, they may not be in state detention. But does Article 2 apply nevertheless where it wouldn't otherwise in an ordinary medical inquest because of that incapacity, even though they're not in state detention or anything analogous to detention? And that's why it's interesting, the language in the new guidance note 16A, because what the new guidance note says is sets out the position that dolls does not mean state detention, but still ends, as I say, on a note of uncertainty, because the new chief coroner says there will always be a public interest in the careful scrutiny of any death in circumstances akin to state detention, as in all cases there must be sufficiency of coroner inquiry, which seems to show some anxiety. There's something extra about these cases, and just because they're not in state detention necessarily, or anything akin to state detention, are those cases able to argue that those cases nevertheless fall under Article 2 because of the special vulnerability of those patients, whether or not that's in conjunction with the supervision and control of the hospital of the type that uh, Maria Ferreira was under. So I'd welcome any discussion. Rachel Marcus of One Crown Office Row. LawPod UK is produced by One Crown Office Row. For more editions of LawPod UK, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.
and recommend us to a friend. 